0: Hello, friends. This is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast, bringing you another bonus episode fueled by world events, namely the current Israel-Hamas conflict. This episode invites on passionate advocate of the free expression of ideas, David L. Bernstein. He is founder of both the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and the Institute for Liberal Values, of which Free Black Thought is a proud member. He is past president and CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs and former executive director of the David Project. Although he knows many a thing about defending liberal values generally, the main reason we invited him on was to discuss ideas from his book, Woke Antisemitism: How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews, which was published in 2022, but seems extremely relevant in this moment. I hope this episode is clarifying for you, because remember... There is no such thing as the Black Perspective, just Black people with perspectives. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. David, thanks for
1: joining us today. I invited you on to hopefully help our listeners understand anti-Semitism a little better. I think for wide swaths of the population, they think of anti-Semitism, they think... Nazi style, white supremacist style. They might even say, yes, there's some Muslims who are anti-Semitic. There's even Christians who are anti-Semitic, kind of the Mel Gibson meltdown, Jews kill Jesus type. However, you wrote a book called Woke Anti-Semitism, which explores a different kind of anti-Semitism that I think a lot of people are seeing. They don't necessarily know what it is. They don't necessarily they can't necessarily put a descriptor on it. I think a lot of people are very confused. And when I talk to my friends who are just normal people, who don't pay attention to geopolitical stuff like you and I might they're just normal everyday folks trying to do their best they're like I'm seeing one thing and it looks to me like there's a lot of hate (laughs) coming towards the Jews in Israel a lot of evil I'm seeing one thing but I'm being told on my feed on my social media feed something else you know I'm being told that everything I'm seeing is a lie or it's AI generated or you know there's propaganda coming out, that kind of thing. And so people are just very lost, very confused. And so I hope this episode helps people feel at least like they know where to go to get better information, like they are standing on a better foundation of the way that they're thinking about about this issue. So for kind of a lack of better words, what inspired you to write this book, Woke Antisemitism?
2: Yeah, thank you, Connie. It's great to be with uh, friends at Free Black Thought. So I've been in the sort of center-left Jewish advocacy world my entire career, where I've advocated for all kinds of policies, including against anti-Semitism and, and support for U.S.-Israel relations, but also other domestic policy issues like criminal justice reform and immigrant rights and and the like. And I spent my career doing that. I did a lot of Black Jewish relations, particularly with the more established black civil rights organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League and the like. And so that's the work I've been doing. But I watched over the course of 20 years, the discourse really shift and and toward the end here, shift in a really significant way. So um, in the late 1990s, I was at this sort of multicultural day thing. And um, the leader of the session opened up with Racism equals prejudice plus power. And I thought, wait a second. First of all, I thought that racism was animus toward another racial group. But in this formulation of racism, anyone who's perceived as having power, like Jews, are going to be immune from experiencing racism themselves or anti Semitism. And in any group that's perceived as powerless, cannot be a victimizer. And I thought that was really dangerous and I wrote about it more than 20 years ago mm. saying if this catches on in progressive circles we're going to be facing some hard times. I wrote about intersectionality in 2016 when I started to see how the concept was being applied in activist circles. So I've been on this for a long time and and it was by the time the George Floyd reckoning came i was very worried about the censorious environment that had set in i worried that it was corrupting the deliberative process on challenging issues like anti-racism in the jewish community we the jewish community traditionally debates issues openly and co- tries to come up with you know consensus as much as possible and we didn't even debate the issues about anti-racism there was sort of this internal pressure to sign up mm. and i thought that was unhealthy And then I started to notice that there were sort of anti-Semitic outgrowths of the ideology as well, that it was fueling anti-Semitism because it created a simplistic oppressed versus oppressor mentality in people that they were easily applying to Jews because Jews were perceived as a successful minority. So if the only explanation you're allowed for why some groups do better than other groups in society is that they're discriminated against, then the groups that are considered like Jews doing well are going to be blamed for the discrimination against others. And I think that's highly problematic. So I started to see that there were, that was happening. And then I founded the organization, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values in May, 2021. So just like two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. And what was astonishing to me, there was a, there was a conflict with Gaza that took place in 2021, May, 2021, we started the organization. And I noticed immediately that that Israel was not being given the benefit of the doubt at all, even in the initial days of the conflict. it was immediately being blamed for being the superior uh, the country with superior firepower. Was
1: that the first time and you' had thought, noticed, when said, Was that the first time you had noticed this dynamic?
2: No, but it was, it was so much more pervasive in 2021 than it was in 2018, that was in 2014, that was in 2009, because I had been following this my entire career. And so I, I realized that, wow, like, we were, no, before there was a little benefit of the doubt, now there was no benefit of the doubt. Okay. And I could tell that the ideological environment had shifted in a way that allowed a lot of progressives to think of Israel in a very, very specific way. Okay. So that, that, that got me thinking, it's time for me to do something very different, to try to get the Jewish community to understand the dangers of this ideology, both in terms of what it does to society and what it does to the Jewish community. And I wrote the book, Woke Antisemitism, in order to address that.
1: So what is woke antisemitism?
2: Well, maybe I should break apart the two, the two uh, words, woke and antisemitism. What do I mean by woke? And look, I think there are people who use the word woke irresponsibly and promiscuously so that they call anything that they don't like woke. And I think that makes it harder for people like me who want to use it thoughtfully and carefully. But um, what I mean by woke is two things. One is the idea that oppression and bigotry are not just a matter of one's personal attitudes, but they're ingrained in the very structures and systems of society. They're like in the air that we breathe. And the second... Poor tenant is that only people who lived experience of oppression have the insight and therefore the right to define it for the rest of society. Now, I always say that both of those things can have some truth to them. Like, yes, you know, oppression can be sort of baked into the system. You know, Jim Crow America, I think, was a systemically racist place, and um, and it can be true that people who lived experience have something to say about whatever they've experienced. Myself as a Jew included, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, it can't be the final word. Like, uh, not all Jews look at their uh, anti-Semitism in the same way. So why would my my description somehow become dominant? Um, and there were other data points besides lived experience. Like, you know, there's a, a Pew survey that showed that American Jews were the most admired religious community in the United States. So I have to take that seriously because it's a data point.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: My lived experience is not the only one. So, I'm, I, so wokeness, in my view can easily become a cudgel, and that's what causes cancel culture. Like it says, you don't have the right to speak openly about that issue. And then it can also be used to sort of reinforce this this oppressor versus oppressed dynamic that labels Jews as the oppressor. So that's how it causes anti-Semitism. We can dig deeper there. There's more to it than that. Um, Anti-Semitism is different in many ways in a lot of, form of uh, forms of bigotry. You don't really hear people saying like, oh, those lazy Jews. It's more of a conspiracy theory than it is, you know, a form of hate. So Jews control the banking industry, the media, and what have you. And it's very easy to slot the conspiracy theory of anti-Semitism into other dogmas and ideologies. So, you know, if you believe that ordinary Americans are being replaced by immigrants, it's very easy to slot anti-Semitism and say, oh, yeah, Jews are the ones doing all the replacing. Yeah. And it's very easy to say, if you believe that there are just oppressed and oppressors and your identity gives you one or the other, then it's very easy to say that Jews are part of the oppressive class. So it creates kind of a permission structure for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And I think that's why we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism in all sectors of society because, you know, people are bewildered. There's no Walter Cronkite narrating our, our experience as Americans, and they're looking for easy ways of understanding what's happening in their own lives, maybe their own struggles. And so they're latching on to simplistic conspiracy theories and dogmas and ideologies, and anti-Semitism easily attaches to all of them.
1: Is How is anti-Semitism the same or different from just racism?
2: Well, you know, Jews are not a race. We never really have thought of ourselves as a race. I mean, the Nazis defined us as a race. Mm-hmm. But I think we see ourselves as both sort of a an ethnic national community and a religion tied up in one. You can be an atheist Jew, for example. Yeah. You know, there are atheist Jews. And so Jews, so it's not correct to call it racism, but it is a form of bigotry because it it relies on stereotypes. and. It, but it just has its own unique properties that are different from most forms of racism.
1: And what role is this woke anti-Semitism playing in the demonstrations we're seeing and what's going on in college campuses, all that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, this is a real wake-up call for a lot of people in the Jewish community who were mad at me for uttering the words woke anti-Semitism, who say, I'm poisoning the well or I'm going to risk our connections with our progressive allies or whatever else they're saying. I think some of them, and I have gotten real apologies from people in the last few days. Wow. Um, including a leading, and I'm not going to say his name, a leading DEI person nationally, just sent me a note saying I was stubborn, and I underestimated the amount of left-wing anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. and um, and this really manifests itself in you know as soon as Israelis had been murdered, before the blood had even dried dried on the pavement pavement, you had real people. Um, you had people on the progressive left and in the Muslim world, but also on uh, you know progressive academics and the like, who basically celebrated the murder. I mean, they didn't even give the obligatory you know condolences. Can you give? They an, just simply can, said.
1: Can you give an example? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, for example, the Coalition for Liberated Ethnic Studies, these are the professors and the groups that teach ethnic studies in California and other places around the country. They're, they're, they're pushing their agenda in school systems around the United States. And they were putting out memes with, um, you know, celebrating the resistance before there was even a war. It was just the slaughter of Israelis. And they were, they were, they were putting out memes about the Palestinian resistance. You had memes coming out of Black Lives Matter in Chicago and in um, and on campuses around the country, portraying the heroic hand glider. These are the Hamas terrorists who use their hand gliders to swoop into a music festival and slaughter 260 young people. Mm-hmm. So we were, I think, a lot of people were shell shocked at that. They were shell shocked at the 31 group, student groups at Harvard that blamed Israel for their own slaughter. They just couldn't imagine that kind of that kind of Moral disturbance, right? And um, and so I think that's been a wake up call for a lot of people.
1: So, how does somebody know whether they're whether they're experiencing or seeing anti semitism versus just an honest critique of, let's say, like the Israeli government or something like that? How do you parse yeah. the two?
2: Yeah, that's really an important question. Look, Israel's a country; it's not a perfect country. Um, I have my own criticisms of Israeli policy over the years. I'm an ardent Zionist; I support Israel's right to exist i love the country i have family in the country but it's it's an imperfect country and israelis will be the first to tell you that and and so if palestinians or anybody else protest israel's policies that's completely legit like i don't think it's illegitimate to protest israeli war policies right now in gaza i think it's largely wrong-headed and i, I might be critical of it but i think it's legitimate it, i don't think it's legitimate to blame israelis for their own murder yeah I don't think it's legitimate to excuse the bloodletting that we saw, the mass rape, the baby beheadings, all the horrors that we saw um, a couple weeks ago, burning kids alive. So I don't think that there's, I think that's illegitimate and anti Semitic, um, but not necessarily to protest Israeli policies, even ones that I, th- even when you're wrong.
1: Is anti Zionism anti Semitism?
2: So I think uh, largely it is, but I think there are probably exceptions to that. Like, in other words, anti-Zionism is saying that Israel has no right to exist as a country, basically. The Jews are not entitled to a state of their own 75 years after the Jews have already established a state. So here you are 75 years later, there's this thriving democracy in the Middle East called Israel. And you're saying that's the one country in the world that you choose to deny its existence. You know, there are people who are opposed to all forms of nationalism. So if they're opposed to all forms of nationalism and they're also opposed to Jewish nationalism, fine. Um, If you're a Palestinian who grew up under harsh conditions, I'm necessarily going to call you an anti-Semite for your feelings. Uh, There are also some Hasidic Jewish groups like um, the Naturi Karta movement that are explicitly anti-Zionist. I'm not going to call them anti-Semites. But I think as a phenomenon writ large, writ large. The idea that only the Jewish state is subject to this, this, this standard, that only the Jewish state's existence is at, is at stake somehow, I think that's anti-Semitic.
1: So what about people who say that a Jewish state isn't necessary? Because look around, like Jews are doing great in America. Jews are doing great in Europe. Why do they need their own state or country? Why is it necessary?
2: Yeah. Well, Jews were doing great in Germany before they were systematically murdered. That's one thing I would say. Um, My mom's from Baghdad, Iraq. Uh, They weren't always doing great there. They did great for like three years and then they weren't doing great anymore and they needed a place to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think the Jewish experience is such that we could be doing great for a while and then not do great anymore. And uh, we need a place to go. And I think Israel provided that refuge for Jews. And it's very important for our own sense of self that we, that there's a country called Israel, whether we live there or not. And so um, I think that's why there needs to be a Jewish state. I, I think that today it's kind of qu- crazy to even, you know, question whether it should exist or not. We don't question the existence of America or Canada or Spain. I mean, it's not these countries are perfect either. We just, we, we accept their existence because they've been around. And Israel has got like the... Um, you know, per capita GDP of a Japan or a UK, it's a highly successful country. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. And somehow you're going to say that that one democracy in the Middle East has to become another Arab state in the region. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it's absurd.
1: Well, what about people who say, who are talking about how this is the recent events are decolonization and then they're pressed on it. People are people say, Okay, well then do you think in America that, you know, Native Americans should rise up and start killing people? And I'm seeing people say, Yes, that they should.
2: Yes. That's what they believe. Some of these people believe that they would justify that in America, but it tends to be aimed more at Israel. Israel becomes the sort of paradigmatic settler colonialist state in this worldview. And so, you know, this really grows out of the late 1960s when the Soviet Union attacked the idea of the Jewish state and created a field called Zionology, which was really a delegitimization of Zionism. And that found its way into like sort of post-colonial ideology. And in many ways, Israel became the sort of, you know, the the poster child of a colonial state that uh, had to be undone in order to for People to experience their liberation. And, um, and I think that's what we're seeing. It's been around a while, but it's become a more dominant voice. You know, the people who are pushing radical ethnic studies in California who believe what we just described, one of those groups at least has a $3 million contract from the U.S. Department of Education to teach their ideology. Mm-hmm. So I think we have, um, we've got to uh, take advantage of the current moment and call these people out and make sure that they don't get further legitimized.
1: I've heard people say that Zionism is not actually so much like a Jewish thing and that it's a Christian evangelical thing. And these evangelicals think that Jews need to be in Israel for the rapture. And that, you know, so I've heard progressive Jews make that claim, like, don't even blame us. Like, it's a Christian thing. We're not really a lot of us aren't even we're against, you know, all this stuff happening. We do think that Israel's colonizers and all that. What's, what's your response to that, those sort of claims?
2: Yeah, I think that's a very small percentage of the American Jewish community. I'm not going to say it's insignificant. It's 5% or something like that. I mean, American Jews overwhelmingly support Israel um, and certainly overwhelmingly think it has the right to exist. Uh, but there, are, there is this small but very, very, very loud right. contingency that makes such claims. Yes, there is, of course, evangelical Christian Zionist support for Israel, um, but that's not all predicated on the rapture. That's not all predicated on this uh, eschatology. I don't know if I even said the word right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it. Um, I think it's predicated more broadly on a sense of Israel being the people of the book and Jews being the people of the book, and this being part of God's grand designs to, you know, to uh, support His uh, people of the covenant. And so I think that's where most of it comes from. But you also have that. Element within the Christian Zionist community.
1: Yeah, like you said, <laughs> these people aren't aren't the majority, but they do have the loudest. Those are the tweets that get a million likes and uh, you know retweeted yes. a thousand times. And I got to say, I'm an evangelical Christian. I never heard that before in my life. You know, I've never heard right. another evangelical right. say put the Jews into Israel for the rapture. But I felt like yeah. I needed to address it because it was a question that somebody brought to me. And like I said, these those kinds of claims get lots of attention online, but When the kind of the consistent, timeless anti-Semitism that echoes through, you know, there's, it's like, there's new, um, you know, iterations of anti-Semitism, like woke anti-Semitism is the anti-Semitism of today. And you go back in time, there's different forms of anti-Semitism. Sometimes I struggle to explain to people who are not spiritual in any way, shape or form, why this is it's and i'm hoping that maybe you can help me explain like why is anti-semitism so timeless if if you can't see it through a spiritual lens if you're not a bible reader if you're not a torah reader how can people understand this who aren't spiritual or religious in any way
2: yeah by the way there are a lot of religious jews orthodox jews who have a very sort of pessimistic outlook about this they believe it's like part of what it means to be a covenantal people, you know, and, um, in covenant with God and that that's just part of our plight and you can, it'll never go away. But I, but I, I don't, I don't abide by that. I just, I think it's worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, there's a lot of explanations, you know, Jews tend to be this sort of intermediary community in, because they're not allowed to, in many cases, historically weren't allowed to own capital so but they play so they played a certain kind of role in societies that made them uh, very susceptible of being scapegoated and so you have those historical roles I think the success of Jews you know economically on average not everywhere there's certainly Jewish poverty there's no question about that but yeah. but the average success of Jews their prominence in certain industries you know from you know Hollywood to the media to the banking industry gives people the impression that they're controlling things behind the scenes. Obviously that's a conspiracy theory. Half those people hate each other. <laughs> but you know, that it's a you know, a conspiracy theory. And someone said, well, if you had any pretensions that Jews control the media, all you have to do is look at the New York Times coverage in the last few days when they blamed Israel. For uh, bombing that hospital that was bombed by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, right, right? That wasn't even bombed, by the way. I mean, they got it wrong on all three counts. Number one, Israel didn't do it. Number two, that the the the, the hospital itself wasn't bombed, and number three, the casualty count wasn't anywhere near five hundred. Was right. probably like fifty. It
1: was a parking so lot, right? That was. It was
2: a parking yeah. lot, right? And um, and so, yeah, we don't control the media because that's not the message that we would have put out there. So. Uh, I think um, I think the other reason is that Jews have also played sort of sometimes an a- adversive effect like uh, like personality in society. We're pointing out sort of what morality can be. We brought uh, a, a biblically oriented but very specifically Jewish morality into secular societies as well. That I think and if you're rebelling against that, like as the Nazis were and others were, You want to create a society that doesn't really abide by any moral codes. You don't want people who are thinking about morality and talking about morality and human rights or whatever else. Jews become a target too.
1: You know, let's actually, rewinding a little bit to what you said about the hospital and like Jews don't control the media and stuff. When it comes to media coverage, you wrote a piece, I think some time ago, about four questions you should ask before believing Israel committed an atrocity. So what are some tools or a lens that you would advise people use when they're receiving news and they're being told one thing? How do you know what's real? How do you know what the truth is?
2: Yeah. I updated that piece this morning, by the way, because I wanted to address the (laughs) hospital situation. So hopefully it'll end up in a publication soon. So, you know, one thing you have to ask is what happened here? Like you got to let the dust settle. I mean, you're in the fog of war. So if someone tells you without any pause whatsoever, even if they're Israeli, this is exactly what happened. You should be very suspicious about that because you don't know what happened. Like when I saw those headlines, I was like, how does the New York Times know that? Like, how could they know that? You know, the New York Times depiction of this was so bad that in the initial, in the initial headlines, they showed the wrong building that had been destroyed. It wasn't the hospital. They showed this building that had been torn apart that was in complete wreckage and it wasn't even the hospital. Mm-hmm. So that's how much they've been taken in by this propaganda campaign. You don't know. It takes a while to know. So sort of hold your powder. That's number one. Number, number two, you once you sort of get a better sense of then you have to sort of analyze it in a way that makes sense. Um, there's two ways that just war theory, which has been around a long time and comes out of sort of comes out of, you know, the Enlightenment period you have to ask two questions. One is, is this war justified? Like, does Israel have a right to even engage it in the first place? And then what does it? What conduct should we expect of a country that does have the right to be in a war? Mm-hmm. Um, so look, I mean, Israel was attacked. 1,500 people were slaughtered, I mean, in the most brutal way. 200 and some people are kidnapped there. I think that's about as clear of a justification for going to war as anybody. And if it happened to the United States, if it happened to the UK, we'd all go to war. We'd all want to clean that up on our border. We'd all try to do it. Now, so what, what can a country do in war? Well, I think you have to ask yourself, what are its war aims? So if its war aims are just to, let's say, stop the rocket attacks, um, and you say that, okay, well, that's one thing. So you, But if you say, the only way we're going to actually ever stop this threat from Hamas is if we uproot Hamas. And, you know, the United States has supported that. Many Europeans openly acknowledge that Hamas has got to go. And so if we're just like ISIS had to be uprooted, then you're going to take different, then it's not going to be this very targeted campaign and it's going to get ugly. I hate to say it, um, Gaza is a very concentrated area and Hamas you know, keeps all its military assets in civilian areas and houses and hospitals and schools and so forth. So there's no, there's no possibility that Israel can conduct a war like that. That's not going to have civilian casualties. That's it. And by the way, every War in history has civilian casualties. Right. It's about fifty percent civilians to military casualties mm-hmm. in every war. And when you look at war in concentrated areas, it tends to be higher than fifty percent civilian casualties. That's which is tragic, of course, because there are non-combatants. Um, now that doesn't get Israel off the hook to go and do whatever it wants. It's you still have to ask the question: Well, should they shoot into a hospital if they're being shot at from the hospital? Mm-hmm. You know, And you know that there's a high concentration of civilians. What happens if you know that there are Hamas militants, terrorists, in a building, and you also know that they have their own family or a couple other families in that same building? You've sent them warning leaflets. You've dropped a, a, a rocket that's called a, like a, a knock on the roof to warn them to go. They don't go. And then you destroy the building and you kill 30 civilians. Mm-hmm. Is that... Just, unjust? I mean, that's where the conversation belongs, but it's not the conversation that people tend to have. They tend to jump to judgment. I call this moral aestheticism. It's a confusion of what looks bad with what is bad. Mm. Because when you apply morality to war, you have to compare it not to like your average day, you know, uh, stroll in the park. This is war. (laughs) And it's got its own moral categories to bring to bear. I mean, you're, you're a military person. You know, the United States and the UK, when they took it to ISIS killed 70, 80,000 people in the process. Mm-hmm. Like these things are never clean. There's going right. to be horrible things that happen. Are they justified? Well, you have to go, you have to show your work. Like my math teacher used to say.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. And so you talked about people, Jewish leadership, folks that, you've, that have been critical of you in the past now, sort of like apologizing. And they say like, I realized that you were onto something are they doing like 180s or are they just saying, okay, this is a little bit of an issue that we need to uh, you know, address or what's kind of the response from those people that are having their minds change?
2: Yeah, I've had a few and it's the, 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 the jury is still out. I'm gonna read one of them because it's, it's like three sentences um, here. The one that came today, again, I'm not gonna name the person, but he's prominent in diversity. First, I hope you and your family and colleagues and friends are in Israel are okay, or at least as well as can be expected. I'm writing because I owe you an apology. I didn't want to see the extent of anti-Semitism on the left that you have been calling out. But recent events have made it clear that, as you said, it is a serious and heartbreaking problem. In any case, I try to live my life in integrity. And so I couldn't not reach out to apologize for how stubborn I was in, your, in our conversations, wishing you well and praying for peace. So, you know, what that does writ large I think it could have a, a big effect. I think this has really traumatized a lot of people. I don't think that people expected the kind of response that we saw among those Harvard students, among these academics, among others that literally didn't even wait for there to be a war before they pronounced Israel, you know, responsible for the, their their own deaths, who were that callous and hateful. Um, so I think that's going to be a wake up call for a lot of people. Whether they come go along and say, "Okay, Bernstein was right" or whatever publicly, I'm not. I'm not sure yet how far they'll go, but I think it moves the conversation in the right direction there because it's almost hard to ignore.
1: And I think, well, at least it's been people are claiming, you know, I'm not plugged into Israeli culture, but there's nothing that really ha- like can or does unite the people more than this. We're seeing everybody set aside oh, yeah. their differences, whether they're a secular Jew or not, and come together to fight this be literally fighting as a soldier or supporting the war effort in in some way but it's, i i'm kind of surprised that it seems like Israel the the IDF approach is still very still very afraid of media coverage uh you know being being labeled as the terrorists themselves and that sort of thing i th- i sort of thought maybe all that's going to go out the window since they've just incurred such a horrible tragedy and it's just going to be like it's scorched earth time is like what will it take i guess for israel or maybe they never can or never will just kind of to turn to the world and be like f you this is our fight we have to handle this the way we see fit and
2: do what
1: we need to do to protect our people
2: yeah look this is definitely that kind of war i mean israelis are are almost unanimous that they have to fight this war. Like the, 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 the Israeli leftists who are fighting the Israeli right-wingers and these excruciating protests that took place right up into the lead to this moment, they are fighting. Mm-hmm. 200,000 Israelis from abroad have took airplanes from wherever they were. Brandy Chofotinsky's son, yep. Dmitry, reported to his unit, um, his infantry unit, the Gavati unit, Just in the last week. So that's what how much how united the country is in this. Now that said, they know that they don't want to face international pressure or what have you more than they have to. They want to be given all the diplomatic and political leeway they can. So imagine, for example, had Israel not proven that it was a Palestinian Islamic Jihad that blew up that 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 hospital parking lot imagine it was a hospital 500 people actually died and israel couldn't prove it you had joe biden coming to the region right you know does an israeli prime minister how would that change that meeting and how would it change american political support the united states has just sent over a massive amount of support military support for israel and israel wants to maintain that needs it needs to be able to buy more you know refills on its iron dome system Mm -hmm. And um, and so it needs to manage the diplomatic and political process as it prosecutes the war. And I think for Israel's own sense of self, it needs you know it needs to think about its red lines. Like, no, you don't want to free yourself of all moral red lines because it makes you into something that you don't want to be. So I think um, I think it's it's a healthy discourse to have within Israel for both its external perception and its internal moral reality.
1: Um, so speaking of, there's there's people. Is Israelis abroad from all of the world returning home? But if you're just an American, what do you, what do you think is the American citizen's responsibility, if if anything, other than to just, you know, say this is off, this is an awful thing that happened. Do you think there's any responsibility from just your average American to do anything, say anything, act in any kind of certain
0: way?
2: Look, I think Israel's been a long-standing ally of the United States. There's shared values between the countries. I think many Americans are religious and have a kind of biblical worldview that informs how they think about Israel. And I think it is much appreciated when Americans reach out to Israel, whatever they do, donate money for, you know, the people who have been victims of terror, or they just reach out to their Jewish neighbor and say, I'm thinking of you. I think that's wonderful. You know, I, I I spoke in, um, in Orlando last week. It was like, it was planned before this all happened. Mm. And, um, I was going through security and there was more security at the Jewish organization I was in than I'd ever seen before. There were some very, very large men. (laughs) I mean, they looked like they, it looked like it was like, it it was like a, um, a unit, like a SEAL team six unit or something. And, um, and one of the guys who was like actually checking out my bag and um, so a very big, burly guy with a beard, and he and I said, thank you so, so much for being here. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, he goes, I did four tours of duty in Afghanistan, and this is the most important thing I've ever done. Oh. Now, I don't believe that he, literally, mm-hmm. but I know what he was trying to communicate yeah. with me. Like he felt what had happened in Israel in his soul. And... And, and he was just very, he was honored to be there that night, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that everybody was safe. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why this is a great country and, and why um, the American people consistently elect presidents to do the right thing almost always, not always, but almost always. You know, whatever you think of Joe Biden, and, you know, I have my critiques, his speech was beautiful. Yeah. It was. And um and my Israeli cousins, uh, I met one of them. I have a family, have a lot of family in Israel, and um I have one cousin who's a very successful entrepreneur, like high tech entrepreneur. He has five kids, five children, and um two of his daughters were really having emotional problems. These, you know, when even when you're in the bunker, like you know when an iron dome hits the incoming missile, it 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 create you you feel the explosion in your bones. Mm-hmm. And, um, and these and his daughters were like one of his daughters was literally shaking all the time. So he just put them all on a plane, because he can, and he brought them all to Times Square, New York, where they're still watching all these horrible anti-Israel protests. Yeah. And, I, and I was talking to him yesterday, and he and he started tearing up when he was talking about Biden's visit and his speech. I mean, those symbols matter so much um, that come from the United States. It gives Israel the confidence and this psychological sense of well-being to do what it needs to do right now. And so I'm very grateful for American support for Israel and how most Americans have really come out of their way to express it.
1: What about, but all the bad side too, like the college campus protests and things like, not just in America, but just kind of throughout the West and Australia and Europe and all that kind of thing. When Israelis see that and see people chanting gas, the Jews and stuff like that, which I believe was being chanted in Australia of all places. yeah, what's is it like, okay, that's a small percentage, like America's still got our back, the West has got our back, or is there this sense that, hey, never again actually means that we can't rely on these other people again, like we can only rely on ourselves to to protect our community?
2: Yeah, I think both of those things are going through my head and Israeli heads at the same time. It is a quite uh, like a bifurcated reality when on the one hand you have like the American president Going to Israel and expressing unqualified support. And on the other, to see 31 student groups on college camp on at Harvard say what they said, or at Stanford or Wisconsin and other universities across the country. It's it's very hard to make sense of it all. And it makes you worry that maybe Joe Biden is the last Democratic president, at least, who's gonna be Mm pro-Israel. Like a lot, that's that's something that's said out loud sometimes in Jewish meetings, you know, that maybe this is it, maybe after that the ideologues are going to take over. So we feel a great sense of pressure around that, a sense that we have to, uh, we have to try to change the political conditions as best we can. And that maybe this moment presents an opportunity because I think it's, it's, it's really hard to justify saying that it was a good idea to murder people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, when, when, so I'm taking notes. Yeah. Um, I'm taking notes and I'm taking names Yeah. and I'm going to let every superintendent of every school district that has hired the, the coalition for liberated ethnic studies to teach their children that Israel and America are settler colonial states. I'm going to let them know who they've been working with. These are the people who praise Hamas and, and who engaged in a Klan rally. Mm-hmm. That's what this is. Like yeah. it's, the, to, I draw that a really bright line between protesting policies or a war and, And calling for the extermination of people, and that's a Klan rally, and and you've contracted with Klansmen if you've done, if you've done that, and so we're 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 gonna we're gonna make it very our we're gonna we're gonna push back really hard on this because now's the time.
1: Yeah, and when you're so when you're engaging with someone who is anti-Semitism oppressor and victim and all this and they they see Jews as having the power and so therefore they're the oppressor and actually when you talked about security at that event that you went to, I've heard people make the claim that because Jews can afford security, even though maybe a lot of people want to hurt Jews, want to abuse them, want to kill them, they can afford the security therefore it's not really oppression whereas you know if you're a poor black person in a bad neighborhood you can't afford the security. So therefore it'll, it's nothing, you can't compare it at all. You know, there's, there's no comparison right. whatsoever. So anyways, when you're engaging with somebody who, who's adopted this, I think a lot of people, like I said, normal, normal, regular, everyday people who aren't on Twitter, who aren't journalists, et cetera, who are engaging in this woke antisemitism, they don't even realize it. Like I see friends who post things and I just kind of go, I just kind of cringe, but I don't know. I what's the best way to just sort of broach the conversation and maybe get them to start seeing things differently. I did see someone doing kind of man on the street interviews and ask someone about what what do they think? Where should Israelis go? You know what? If if, you know, Israel becomes Palestine, where should Israelis go? And the person yes. didn't have an answer.
2: <laughs> didn't care. They, they just plain didn't care. Like, just get out of our lives. It's not your land, kind of thing. Well, and this was yeah. this was
1: not a this was not a Palestinian. This is just a, just a white girl, you know, like a white liberal at a college, and she did sort of look like she didn't even realize what the sign she was saying said. She like she'd right. never been asked that before. She'd never considered it, and so I sort of put that in my pocket, like a way you know something to bring up to someone. But do you yes. have any other ways that you kind of broach the conversation and try to help people just see d- different in a kind of a gentle way, where it's not this aggressive yeah. back and forth?
2: Yeah. And I do some of that. and I try to do some of that. But I really I, I also try to remember, like, that's not my main target audience. My main yeah. target audience are people who are moderates and to get the moderates to speak out mm-hmm. and to say, guys, we can't sit on the sidelines on these things. where radicals take over our institutions. But that said, you know, there's a phrase that I learned from somebody that I tell people to use when they um, uh, don't say I disagree. Say, I think about it differently. Mm-hmm. What are they going to tell you? Not to think about it differently? (laughs) Um, You know, that you have to think about it just as they do. So I think it's a good way of going into a conversation and ask if we can have a civil conversation about this Mm -hmm. in advance. Yeah. So you're setting the ground rules of the discussion. And you're saying, you know, what do you think other countries would likely do? And should Israel be held to a different standard than any other country? Do you think the United States would be okay if, There were people firing rockets into our areas, digging tunnels underneath and coming in and slaughtering people. And even if you think that they shouldn't respond in that way, do you see other countries in the world responding differently than Israel? And then what does that say about them if if Israel is the only country that's being held to that standard? You know, those are the kinds of things I would try to do. There's some people that will never work. They're just so set in their ways and the way that they see the world. But there are other people they are on the, you know they're on the fence a little bit more yeah. than they might realize. And if you challenge them in a way that allows them to hear you, maybe you'll, you'll move them out of that um, camp.
1: Are you seeing a lot of people picking up your book now and like you're pointing it as a resource and folks are, you know, like, okay, I, I got to use this book as my guide now.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, I'm hearing a lot about it. I, I, you know, this is 10 days old, so I don't have the numbers yet, yeah, I but, um, you know, I could, but you know, I can, but you know, I, I wrote a piece in Quillette this last week called Woke Antisemitism, A Reckoning. Mm-hmm. And, and it was about like, look, maybe now's the time when people will take this seriously. You know, I'm not, I don't want to gloat. I don't want to sound like I told you so, but I did tell you so. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I, I tried to explain to them that, you know, that this was happening and that it's more dangerous than you think and that you can't just compromise with it all the time and think that you're just going to end up managing the way that they perceive Jews like there's a, there's an impulse among many in the Jewish community to just make peace with it as much as possible and only call it out if it really involves the most extreme statements and i say that's going to be a game of whack-a-mole because you're going until this ideology itself is put back into its box we're going to have ongoing problems with anti-Semitism. And so, I am I going to win the, that argument? I think I have a better chance now than I did two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> at a terrible, terrible price. Yeah,
1: yeah. Is it important to make the distinction when you're fighting anti-Semitism, like what type of anti-Semitism it is? You know, is it important for people to be able to go, this is woke anti-Semitism versus white supremacy? I,
2: I think it is in some ways because... Otherwise, you don't really know where it's coming from. And, and I always say, like, you can't fight the kind of anti-Semitism in the right if you just think you're fighting the symptoms. It's not like just stop the guy from taking a gun and shooting up a synagogue. You also have to know that he's been reading certain great replacement theory texts and what that, and, what, and, and has bought into that. And who's, who are the people preaching that? And where's the anti-Semitism likely to come from if that's what their, their propaganda says? And I think the same goes on the left. If if you're just talking about the symptoms of it, you're really not dealing with the root causes, which, in my view, comes out of this ideology itself that sees the world in such stark terms—oppressor versus oppressed terms. But then, then you, what what a lot of groups do because they they want to make peace with the progressive left as much as possible, so they'll they'll sort of preach woke pieties. While they oppose anti-Semitism on the left, they don't realize the contradiction there. They don't, they don't understand that, it, that the very ideology that they're preaching is conditioning people to think in a way that is going to make them more anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And so I try to get them to see that. And I think it's really important for the Jewish community to see that we're not going to be effective on fighting anti-Semitism on the left if we cannot even talk about its ideological underpinnings.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a good point. I have you seen the video? Is made by I think his name is Ryan Long. He's a comedian, and it, it was like the woke person versus the 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 white supremacist, and they were basically oh, saying oh yeah, the that same was very thing. funny. And how
2: much they almost had in common or something?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, yeah. That's even some you know, I guess white supremacists tend to just say I'm a white supremacist. They don't tend to hide it, but in a sense, they're kind of saying the same thing, right? That 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 skit actually. Illustrated that in
2: a really clear, yeah. funny way. Yeah. Yeah. At Stanford, uh, going back a few years, at Stanford University, there was this um, Stanford student senator who was brought up on charges because he said that he didn't think it was anti Semitic to say that Jews control the media and banking and, and the like. And there was this big hearing ab- that went about it. And a lot of people came to testify against them. And several students, according to this report, said that well, we should not talk about that. We should be able to talk about the intersection of white privilege and Jewish privilege. And basically they had created a permission structure for themselves to say the exact same thing, basically conceptually as the guy that they were bringing up on charges, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it, so wokeness had given those students the ability to say, yeah, Jewish privilege, you know? And um, even though they were condemning Jews control the media. Yeah. And so it's kind of ironic there there's this sort of horseshoe theory of anti-Semitism. you go further enough on the right or further enough on the left they end up being more or less the same thing. I also think that it's a cycle it's a bit of a cycle too, and that is that the more that identity politics becomes the the name of the game, right the more that everybody you know puts their grievances up on the public stage, the less that they talk about what they have in common as Americans, the, the more that White folks in America uh, will start talking less about being American and more about their whiteness. And they'll develop a white identity politics that I think is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been in conversation with many of them um, who say, well, you don't think we have the right to, to, to have our own Likud? Likud is the Israeli right wing political party. And he's basically saying, you don't think we have the right to our own right-wing identity politics when you're allowing everybody else to do, say the same things about them? Why just not us? And there's no good answer to that. And the only answer to that, in my view, is to start pushing back against that identity politics because it's not healthy for society.
1: When people going back a little bit to your example of saying like Jews control the media and stuff like that, and we've seen, you know, big Nick, Kanye, even Dave Chappelle was dabbling in this kind of stuff, and if someone says that, maybe they don't use the word control, but they say, you know, Jews play a big role in the media or Hollywood or banking sure. or whatever, and they say this is statistically true. Like they're overrepresented; they're this much of the population, yeah. and they're this percentage mm-hmm. of bank presidents or whatever. And they're pointing this out, and they're making it a point to to highlight this. But at the same time, they don't necessarily say that's a problem. <laughs> you know, they're just kind of. Like, hey, a lot of Jews run these banks, yeah. but they don't say it's an issue. Right. Is that anti-Semitism or is that flirting with anti-Semitism? No, not feminism?
2: necessarily. And it depends on what you conclude by that, what you're trying to imply by that. So if you say there's a lot of Jews in Hollywood, like Dave Schiffeld did, does that mean that they're all coordinating and um, and that there's some big conspiracy theory? Like, it is objectively true that there's a lot of Jews in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean that, that they like each other. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that they have some grand plan. Right. Just like you know there's a lot of black folks in the NBA mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, you know there, there's a, uh, there's a lot of you know Italian folks in you know I don't know um, um, whatever in the mafia by the way or also you know that the, the, there, there are concentrations of people in certain fields right. Jews tend to be overrepresented in a lot of fields at the highest levels because you know they have a highly educated background because they come from the creative fields that you know so there's a culture that provides for Jews to be successful in a lot of places, in a lot of segments of society. So it doesn't mean that there's a grand conspiracy theory. It just means that there's a lot of Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, like if anything, like in Hollywood, the, the, the portrayal of Jews in cultural life is not what most Jewish organizations would want to see. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it tends to, they tend to do a lot of portraying of disconnected, alienated Jews and not a lot of like Jewy Jews. And so, um, so you know, I, so you know, it. Um, that, that's what I think. That's what delineates anti-Semitism from just an observation, right? Mm-hmm. That there are a lot of Jews in certain sectors.
1: Yeah, and it's fine to to point that out and be honest about it. Yes. Yeah. What you're then? What do you say after the after you pointed that out? Yeah, what's what, your conclusion?
2: Yeah, what's your conclusion that they're all controlling things? I mean, they probably. You know, I there, there's all kinds of you know examples of like the Jewish executive from one, um, you know, agency hates the Jewish executive at the other one. They don't even think of the other as Jews, right. you know, or, or Wall Street Titans. You think they all like each other just because they're Goldstein and Goldberg? Right. I mean, I can promise you that they don't, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I people understand this about any group, right? Like if, if you yeah. were to say, oh, you probably get along, Connie, you get along with this other girl at work because she's also black. I'd be like, What? You know, I think I think the Dave Chappelle's and whoever else understand that they'd recognize that that's incorrect and actually racist to 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 make the claim that, you know, we all like hang out together all the time. and We're all buddies just because of our of our somewhat ethnic heritage that still might be very, you know, separate.
2: Yeah. And I think that we have to create some room for. Discussions of culture that and and what outcomes culture creates, like in us, like we have to have room for that discourse in a way and knowing that there's some bad people that are going to weaponize it and use it as a source of racism or anti Semitism. But you still, I mean, the reason why we talk about culture is because we understand that different groups of people on a whole behave differently because they have a different. Set of norms that govern how they interact with themselves in the world, and to think that that somehow doesn't have any impact on on society, on that group or whatever. Every group has it, so we have to have a language. We can't just pretend it doesn't happen or it's not the tr- that there's no truth to it. Yeah, we we also have to be nuanced in how we talk about it and not make generalizations that are meant to demean another community. But you know, so that's the trick, and I think what woke discourse does is it tries to kill off any of that conversation. It says there's only one acceptable set of ways of talking about that. And it's systemic factors. Like how how is the external world imposing on people to make it so that they have less? And um, and I think we have to resist that. Now, I have to be careful, too. I, here I am talking. I'm, I'm a I'm quote-unquote anti-woke. I'm a, a liberal humanist type. I'm pushing back against the ideology. And yet I'm talking about anti-Semitism at the same time. So I'm part of a movement of people who are saying that claims of systemic racism are being exaggerated in society and and yet talking about anti-Semitism at the same time. And the way I delineate that is I claim no identitarian deference. I claim no um, – I claim that you don't have to agree with me on anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. If you Connie kind of think, you know, David, I think you're exaggerating X, Y, or Z. Or I don't really think wokeness is a source of anti-Semitism. I have to be able to entertain that because because that's what it takes to be in a liberal society. I still might I'm gonna make my arguments mm-hmm. and I think I'm right, but I'm not going to impose that on you. I'm not gonna to try to cancel you if you disagree with right. me. Right. And I think that's the difference here. We can I we can talk about things and talk uh, without without it becoming a source of a lethal identity politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's so important. And I wish <laughs> I wish we could have conversations about any topic without people, you know, just shutting you down. It's not just the racial elements, you know, anything that we want. To, everything has become political and, and everything feels like a chance to lose a friend. At least that's how I'm feeling yeah. um, in the discourse, which is really unfortunate. I have one more question for you until we'll get into the speed round, and then let you okay. take the floor one more time for your final thoughts. But do you think that because people are able to sort of get away with woke anti-Semitism more, it's kind of in vogue right now almost that people are sort of they're they're not necessarily even woke, but they are, they do hate Jews, and so they're they're shifting over to the the woke to because there they're allowed to to be anti-Semitic, but it's not necessarily reported, it's not as obvious. Do you think that's happening? Or are people still just sort of staying in their anti-Semitic lanes, if that makes sense?
2: Yeah, it might be a little bit of both of those things. Like anti-Semitism itself is a shapeshifter. And I think that there are people who have sort of bullying tendencies in their personality. And if they're given an ideological permission slip to be a bully, Mm -hmm. they'll do it. They'll Mm -hmm. take it. And so I think like a lot of what you see on the extreme woke left are bullies being bullies and giving themselves permission to be bullies. And and the same goes for that variant of anti-Semitism. You know, they're just looking for ways of doing it. They already have some preconceived notions. And and at the same time, it creates a culture that brings that lures people in that might not otherwise be in that camp. Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. Uh, Lots to think about, and I hope people go pick up your book and learn more. But let's get into the speed round, and then after that, you'll get a chance to say your final thoughts. Um, These are 10 questions. The goal is for you to answer them as quickly as possible. Some of them are a little bit more serious. Some of them are a little bit more silly. Are you ready?
2: I'm ready. Let's do it.
1: Should Pluto still be considered a planet? No. Do you celebrate Juneteenth?
2: Celebrate, no, but I I'll, I'll certainly have a conversation about it.
1: How many times have you been in love?
2: Eh, maybe three times.
1: <laughs> What's a, a conspiracy theory that you sort of believe?
2: Uh, this is a good one. I, I sort of believe that there could be coordination between the social media companies and some of the national security infrastructure in censoring American society, particularly on Twitter and other places like
1: that. Mm, Yeah, I think that's pretty soon not going to be a conspiracy theory, but that's just me. What's a movie you like that everyone else hated?
2: Ooh, that's a good question because I have pretty mainstream tastes (laughs) in movies. I like this film, *Searching for Bobby Fischer*, which nobody knows about. It's just about this young kid who's a chess prodigy. I just thought it was such a sweet movie. And there were some people I would like watch that movie with, and they would tell me it's um, they they would tell me it's a crappy movie or whatever, but I liked it.
1: Okay, I'm, I've never heard of it, so I'm gonna definitely look that up. It's, it's
2: old. I'm old.
1: <laughs> Should the United States keep daylight savings time?
2: No, I just think that's so bizarre that we have to change our clocks all the time. Just keep it at the same <laughs> place. Jeez.
1: Where is there systemic racism in
2: America? Ooh, I wrote a, a pretty long essay for free black thought called In Search of Systemic Racism. And um and, and so I talk about seven different claims of systemic racism. I think that there's some systemic racism in in not taking Black lives serious enough. Glenn Lowry made this point about the criminal justice system. It's not that there was an intentionality to create disparities in criminal justice where, let's say, Black people were arrested for crack and sent time in jail more than white people. It's just that when Black people were in jail for 10, 15 years for low-level drug crimes, the average white American probably didn't rise up. And that might be an indicator Mm -hmm. of a kind of systemic racism. I buy that. And I think it might exist in other areas. I think there's probably institutional racism in certain police departments, for example, Mm -hmm. but that those claims can be overstated too. And you have to, like, like, like the, you know, judging Israel's conduct in war, you have to show your work as I said, like when your, yeah. to your math teacher says, you have to show your work. Like, okay, you're making an argument that there's systemic racism? Fine. That's, what's your evidence? What, uh, you know, let me give you a great example. I, I know this is r- wrapping around, but I can't help myself. No, go, so ahead. I'm gonna have to go to this. ahead. Okay. So there was a recently s- a study that black women are dying in childbirth at a three to one or four to one rate over white women. And, um, and it was immediately concluded that that was systemic racism. But I had, rem- I had remembered and I had seen a study that had just come out from the University of North Carolina Medical School that when they treated black women uh, who were susceptible to hypertension for hypertension, that it actually erased the disparity. And so what I think the discussion sometimes does around systemic racism is it makes you think that that's the only acceptable explanation. And you actually don't look for other possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, that, that might be at work there like that, like, and, and I, and, and this is one example where I think that that analysis is badly flawed. It may be true. It's not that I'm saying it's not true. I just want to be open to other possibilities besides that. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, and that's a, that issue specifically black maternity, um, data. That's a big pet peeve of mine and something actually I'm working on addressing, writing about for free black thought. So actually I might do a podcast episode about it. Um, or I might, I haven't decided anyways, that's, neither here nor there. I'm a mom of three. So obviously if black women are dying in childbirth, that's something that interests me a lot. And to your point, as you dig, you find out that there's other explanations. Anyways, next question. Are Do dress codes add value to society?
2: Some dress codes. I mean, otherwise we'd all be walking around like naked or whatever. <laughs> so I think you need some dress codes. You know, I think you can go too far. Like, you know, I, I kind of, I'm cool with like relaxed work environments. Yesterday I was in a really high, highfalutin um, finance firm on Wall Street and no, everyone had ripped up jeans. So, really? you know, <laughs> yeah, so they're successful. What, what am I going to say?
1: Right, right. What is the tastiest style of cheese?
2: Very good question. I'm gonna go with like I, I love just melted cheddar cheese, like on on a grilled cheese sandwich or whatever.
1: Don't need to get fancy with it. And then your final question is Jordan or LeBron?
2: Oh man, that literally I've been in hour long arguments with my <laughs> sons about that. Like 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 we came to blows over yeah. that. Um, I go with Jordan, but they're they because they've seen LeBron, they grew up with LeBron. It's for them, as LeBron. But I grew, I saw them both, and I think Jordan was better.
1: Alrighty, I think um, that generally tends to be the case, right? The older generation always picks Jordan. But, okay, that was the 10 questions. Thank you for humoring me. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Think, you know, anything else you want to plug? Stuff you're writing, stuff you're thinking about? Anything yeah. you want to say before we sign off?
2: Yeah, just one last thing. I think this is a golden opportunity for us to – try to retake the, the discourse to um, reinstill values of freedom of exp- speech and freedom of expression. This exposed how bad the university environments have has gotten. So let's, let's take this moment, free black thought, Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, Asian American, Indian American groups, Latino American groups, all the groups, all the free speechers. This is our moment to um, to push back and regain the upper hand.
1: I think we should maybe uh, form a group called the Free Speechers. That would be (laughs) freespeechers.com. It's just all of us. Yes. David, thank you so much for coming on. I think this is a really helpful, insightful episode. And thank you for being a friend of Free Black Thought.
2: Thank you so much. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast.